Welcome to Sideline Sleuths, a true crime podcast all about the tragic yet fascinating cases no one can seem to get enough of. I'm Megan. And I'm Jasmine. We're so glad you're listening. If you like being an armchair detective, you'll love being a Sideline Sleuth. So this is our first episode, everybody, recording long distance, not being face-to-face with Jasmine, although it's still, it really feels like we are because I can see her. Yeah. So it doesn't, it feels like you're honestly sitting really close to me. <laughs> but, you liked how far okay. away I used to sit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it just, it's like, very, this is, this is very intimate for you being all the way in New York. So it's probably not surprising that I'm in a lot of Facebook groups about murder and missing people. And it's in one of those groups that I first learned about the story I'm going to tell you today. Today, we're going to talk about the life, the death, and the afterlife of a man named Gerald Cotton. Now, after I started working on this episode... I saw that Netflix is going to release a documentary about this guy in February of this year. So, so next you know month. It's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, it's called Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King. So this is a story that's, y'all know what I'm going to say. That's bananas. <laughs> Honestly, we we need to add something. Like we had a, we had a kid make a, one of my friend's. Son made a little graphic of bananas dressed as cops for us um, to our tea public store, but I feel like I need some I need some more banana stuff because that's how often we say it. But anyway, (laughs) Gerald or Jerry, as he was often called, was a Canadian man who had recently gotten married and died nine days into his Indian honeymoon when he suddenly began to experience extreme complications from Crohn's disease. The thing is he that when he Crohn's died, disease and then, he did have Crohn's okay, disease. Okay. It was documented, yeah. But nine days into his honeymoon, it killed him. Oh. And, I mean, that's sad on its own, but not really criminal. So the thing is that when he died, approximately $137 million died along with him. And it wasn't his money. I've seen conflicting reports about the total, but on 137 million was the lowest and also most common amount that I saw. So that's it was you know a hundred and a lot. lot of million dollars. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say a lot of million. <laughs> so here's what we know: Jerry was 30 years old at the time of his death. He died December 9th, 2018, and he was born May of 1988. So he's younger than me. He married a woman named Jennifer Robertson, or Jen, just before he died. The pair were on their honeymoon in Jaipur, India, when he passed away. Jerry and a friend, Michael Patrin, some say Patrin, but Michael Patrin, had founded a cryptocurrency company called Quadriga CX in November of 2013. At the time of Jerry's death, it was Canada's largest cryptocurrency company. However, in 2019, it went bankrupt. Well, their founder or their co-founder died the end of 2018. But the weird part is that the company didn't announce Jerry's death until a month after he passed away. And Jerry died just days after he completed a will, 
which reports say was done at the advice of a lawyer. But in this will, he left all of his assets to his wife, with some reports saying it was like $80 million. The assets that he transferred to Jen included $9 million in real estate, a Lexus, a Cessna plane, and a yacht. Nice. And he even like went so far as to transfer all of his frequent flyer miles to her. So this is like very, very calculated. I mean, maybe she just had a really good lawyer, but like a very thorough lawyer. The the frequent f- flyer miles seems so formal to me. Like, I think you would do all the other stuff as like a, you know, when I die, I do want you to have my yacht. But would you do your frequent flyer miles unless you thought you were like about to die, right? Because you're... No, that's what I mean. It seems absurdly thorough. Like, I have stuff that says like who Brogan would go to, my son, if I died. And if I owned anything or had any money, which I don't, <laughs> I would I would send that to somebody. But my frequent flyer miles, unless I thought I was dying, I'm not giving them to you because I want to use them. Oh, I get what you're saying. So it, you so would like, have to be... I, I hear what you're saying. Unless he just has a super It would have to be, lawyer. like, imminent or something. But no, like, if you don't think you're about to die, don't you want your own frequent flyer miles? I'd be like, no, girl, get. I need these. We about to go somewhere. Like You're right. But maybe there's, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. I don't know about, like, you know. I don't know. Will law. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know anything. <laughs> I have no assets. <laughs> I'm so, so saying, like, mm. I think we're exposing, like, how many plans I did not make yet. <laughs> when he died, he was actually worth zero dollars. Okay. Instead of $80 million because he had given everything to Jen. And after okay. his death, Jen told the world that only Jerry had the passwords to the company's offline cold wallets. And all of the millions of dollars, mainly in Bitcoin, that investors had given to the company were gone. No one could access them except Jerry, so which sketchy. led people... Yes, which led people to speculate if maybe he just took the money and ran. So the question became, did Gerald Cotton actually die in December of 2018, or did he fake his own death and disappear with all that money? If you're like me, and you don't know anything about cryptocurrency, then we need to start all the way at the beginning to dissect the facts of this case. Wow, this is so educational. Thanks, Megan. I learned like so much stuff. (laughs) So first, let's start with Jerry's company, Quadriga CX. So according to NerdWallet, cryptocurrency is a, quote, form of payment that can be exchanged online for goods and services. Many companies have issued their own currencies called tokens, and these can be traded specifically for the good or the service that the company provides. Think of them as you would arcade tokens or casino chips. You'll need to exchange real currency for that currency to access the good or service, end quote. So as the mom of a third grade boy, I was like, oh, like V-Bucks on Fortnite. (laughs) But um, unlike V-Bucks, which can only be used in Fortnite, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin can be used to buy actual, real, tangible things. At the time of researching this, you could buy Teslas and Lamborghinis on a website called Car for Coin using Bitcoin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could also use US dollars, but like it's yeah, in a it's a real currency. Like yeah, yeah, that you can use to buy real things. Um and I don't know, it's it just seems dangerous to me. I'm maybe I'm just like old, but I'm like, why would I do that? Why don't I just use real money? I don't know. I feel like it feels very elusive to me as well. And most times of everything I hear about Bitcoin, it's like, it seems like it makes it easier to do shifty things with money, but I am a novice. So 
Yeah. Okay. So get ready to hear all the shifty things <laughs> coming up. So the next thing I looked up is what is a cold wallet? Because Jen tells everybody only Jerry has access to the cold wallets. And it's a term I saw a lot in my research. So the people who gave like, you know, $140 million to Jerry's company stored this money in cold wallets. So a hot wallet is a cryptocurrency wallet that you manage on an internet connected device like your phone or a computer. Mm -hmm. And a cold wallet is an offline wallet. So Investopedia likened a hot wallet to like a checking account and a cold wallet to like a savings account because I have a debit card for my checking account, but I don't have it for my savings account. Right. So it's like harder to access. Why, so if I ever... Why would Jerry have all those passwords? That seems because ill-advised. He's like, he's like <laughs> the company and people are giving them this money to invest and he's storing them in these cold wallets. And... Yeah. It's been said that cold wallets are more secure. They're less yeah. likely to be hacked, which I can believe. Like if I like when I get my tax return, I very quickly move it to another account that I don't have a debit card for. Right. Because if I lose my debit card or my debit card gets hacked at the gas station, which happens to me like way too freaking much, um, it's like you're not going to get as much money because I don't have that much stuff in my checking account. Yeah. But in like one of my bank accounts that doesn't have a debit card linked to it is right. safer. So. Jerry had these people's money in a cold wallet, which was harder to hack or access from the outside. But in removing those access points... You can't see your money. You It's gone. <laughs> like, so you should keep small amounts of cryptocurrency in a hot wallet because it has less security and it's more easily compromised. And cold wallets are for larger sums of money. They are sometimes called hardware wallets or offline wallets. And they're typically stored on a USB device with a private key, which is a password, that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can access securely, but like it isn't on the internet. Yep, yep. So Quadriga CX used cold wallets. And I'm sorry if I'm like, not mansplaining because I'm not a man. No, I think but like, it's a really, uh, it's a cryptic space. Uh, hence the prefix and, crypto yeah. and i don't know how many of our <laughs> listeners are like into cryptocurrency Bitcoin, so they yeah. like this whole episode sure. might be lost on them if they didn't know what a cold wallet or a hot wallet was or whatever so in 2013 jerry and that guy michael patrin started quadriga cx together it was created as a cryptocurrency exchange which is like a place where people could buy and sell it online Mm -hmm. Quadriga would take half of a percent of the transaction as their fee. During the investigation of all of this, it was uncovered that Michael Patrin was actually a convicted white-collar criminal. He was born Omar Danani and legally changed his name twice over the years. Now, this is something that he denies, but me and the internet sleuths do our due diligence, and they are the same. How are you going to deny it if we can find proof of it? But okay. They are the same person. So... He claims that he and Omar Danani are not the same person, but if you look at booking photos and then like other photos of Michael, if they're not the same person, they're identical twins. And no. so first he was Omar Danani, and then he changed his name to Omar Patrin, and then he changed his name to Michael Patrin. So like anybody with like a keen eye and a, an ounce of common sense is going to connect those dots. So cool. Michael, a.k.a. Omar was convicted and served time in a U.S. prison for his role in an online identity theft ring. In November of 2005, the Department of Justice press briefing stated, quote, 
six men who administered and operated the shadowcrew.com website, one of the largest online centers for trafficking in stolen credit cards and bank card numbers and identity information, pleaded guilty today in federal court. The Department of Justice and U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey announced today. The one-stop online marketplace operated by the defendants was taken down in October of 2004 by the U.S. Secret Service, closing an illicit business that trafficked in at least 1.5 million stolen credit and bank card numbers that resulted in the loss in the excess of $4 million, end quote. So, like, and people are trusting him with, like, millions of dollars because they don't know who, they, they really don't even know who is running Quadriga. The document goes on to name all six defendants, one of which was 22-year-old Omar Danani from Fountain View, California. The briefing continues, quote, The defendants admitted their respective roles in the online conspiracy to commit credit and bank card fraud, as well as identification document fraud. Both the conspiracy and unlawful transfer counts carry maximum prison sentences of five years and a maximum fine of $250,000, end quote. U.S. Attorney Christopher J. Christie said, quote, As this case also shows, criminals operating in the virtual world of the Internet are not ultimately anonymous. Their crimes can be traced and documented, and they can be tracked down, arrested, prosecuted, and sent to prison, end quote. Omar served 18 months and was released in 2007. Wow, so he, he really served time. Yeah. He's but a like criminal. A hot second of it. 18 months, bro? He yeah. obviously didn't learn his lesson. Well, I don't know. We'll let you decide. But so... <laughs> What was Shadow Crew? Basically, it was like a cyber crime message board okay. that operated from 2002 to 2004. And according to the DOJ, it was like this online hub of identity theft activity. And they actually really arrested 21 people for their involvement with it. But like there was like six like main ones and Michael Omar was one of them. So his criminal activity didn't stop after Shadow Crew and after he went to prison. He's getting, there's really big returns on his criminal activity. So why would he stop? 18 months, stop on the race, he got four mil. Yeah. So continue. Uh, no, according to him, he and was that's like. that's not in, what I'm telling to the kids. Kids, don't do crimes. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> you're in, you're, here you're like, I mean, it's kind of working out in his favor. You get millions of dollars, you only do 18 months. That is not the message. Crime, <laughs> say no, kids. So um, according to Michael Patrin, he left Quadriga in 2016 and actually wasn't involved in all at all in whatever Jerry was doing. That, that seems later. convenient. All of a sudden you just go clean and you're just great at cryptocurrency. Yeah. Mm. So according to him, he had no knowledge of it. He's like, had no idea what was happening over there. But hmm. so in 2015, the co-founding duo decided to take the company public, but that eventually fell apart in like the 11th hour. Because there was like a disagreement between Michael and Jerry about, I guess, like really going through it. And that's what Michael says caused him to just like walk away because they couldn't agree. So after Michael allegedly left in 2016, Quadriga became a one-man show. Just Jerry. So there's this lady named Amy Castor. And she's like, she's fantastic. We'll talk about her a bunch more times. So she said, quote, this young man was running this whole operation by himself. He was handling hundreds of millions of dollars, basically off of his laptop. There was no regulatory oversight over this exchange, no accounting. This company had no corporate banking. It was just Gerald Cotton, end quote. So at the time of his death, Jerry Quadriga, I mean, they're the same thing. 
uh, owed yeah. its 76,000 investors approximately $124 million, which is $169 million Canadian dollars. Canada's biggest security regulator, which is the Ontario Securities Commission, called it a Ponzi scheme. Their June of 2020 report said that Jerry siphoned off company assets for personal use and included a photo of what can only be described as like wads of cash in his home. And the OSC went on to say that what happened at Quadriga was an old-fashioned fraud wrapped up in modern technology. Yeah, that's it. Like, just just the allure of like, oh, you're gonna make a bunch of money. Yeah, it's gonna be quick. It's gonna be smart. And then they're I'm the smart one. Gone. I'll keep everything safe. Yeah, on this laptop. On my own, per- <laughs> on my private device with no corporate banking and no government regulation. It's just, and like, they didn't. Yeah. But the people didn't know that. Like, they don't know that this. Right, I'm sure they dressed it up really. Yeah, nice. they don't know that this company is not a company. It's like a one dude, a late twenties dude taking millions of dollars alone. Like he has no staff. It's just him. One of the company's investors, who was not identified by name, said, "Quote." It's theft. It's like a $200 million bank job. And you've got law enforcement agencies that are doing like next to nothing investigating it. End quote. Right. Because it's a totally foreign space. It's really unregulated. I don't know enough about it. And I think, nope, not a lot of people. And like, unless this is what you do for work, it is really foreign still to a lot of people. I know some people that work in the crypto space and it's foreign to them. So there's a gas station by my (laughs) favorite Target and it had a big banner outside yesterday that was like, buy Bitcoin for cash here. And after like researching this, I was like, I'm not giving anybody any of my money. (laughs) And certainly not at Valero or whatever. I don't know what that gas station was. The 7-Eleven. Um, So I was really enjoying researching this episode because we're a true crime podcast, but we don't do, like, all crimes. We do murders and disappearances and, like, police cover-ups and suspicious deaths, but I don't – and we've never done theft, and we've definitely never done white-collar crime, have we? No, we should do it more. So this was, like – this was, like, new. But also there's death involved, which is, like, you know, my thing. Double whammy. Yeah, so sometimes you guys know that, like, I get into this, like, funk – researching an episode and I can't, I just can't seem to get motivated. I, I need to really lose myself in research for it to work for me. Like I have to, I have to find a case that leads to me like opening another tab and another tab and another tab. And then before you know it, it's 4am and I'm Googling Costa Rican centralized digital currency services from 10 years ago. <laughs> so that, if I can't do that, then it's not the case for me, but that's exactly what I was doing here. So <laughs> this brings me to the Liberty Reserve and Midas Gold. So Liberty Reserve was a Costa Rican-based digital currency company who Amy Castor, the girl from earlier I said I loved, she is an independent reporter that focuses on financial fraud. She called Liberty Reserve PayPal for criminals. So oh. after I stumbled across her articles and her website- Who even knew there was a PayPal for criminals? Criminals? <laughs> That's so dangerous, guys. Yeah, Jasmine's really wholesome. So, <laughs> um, so I listened to this episode on File on Four called "The Crypto Factor: The Winners and Losers in Virtual Investment," and File on Four is a program on BBC Radio. After this episode, everybody go listen to that. I listened to it like three times while I was doing this. It's, it's just like. These people are a lot smarter than me. So they talk about cryptocurrency like they really know what's happening, and I'm, I'm the, the newbie. But so like, if I'm not doing a good job at explaining it, these people got it. So, 
I'll post the day that this airs. I will post a link to that episode on our Facebook page. So you guys can check it out. It's 37 minutes long and it's really fascinating. And I learned so much stuff about it. And mainly like the crazy, as I learned how unregulated and like unsafe this really is. So in the file on four episode, it says that cryptocurrency was born out of a growing dissatisfaction of banks and the way that they handled things only for it to become perhaps worse than banks with even fewer regulations. So Francis Coppola, which is a finance writer for Forbes magazine, there's actually like three people with that name if you try to Google it, but anyway, they- I was gonna say, why does that name sound yeah, so familiar? There's, um, they told the file on four team, quote, anyone, one man with a laptop can set up a trading exchange and attract investors from all over the place and manage hundreds of millions of pounds of cryptocurrency. In the finance industry, that person would have to be registered and be a fit and proper person, end quote. But not in cryptocurrency. Like, I could do it. You could do it. We don't know anything. We could take hundreds of millions of dollars tomorrow from anybody. And they don't know who we are? That's it's insane. So in 2014, an appearance on the podcast True Bromance, Jerry himself said, quote, it essentially removes the need for a central authority. Then you can get rid of the fees. You get rid of a lot of regulations. It's pretty much money by people for people, end quote. He just like saw easy money and like dove at it. It's a Ponzi. It's a scam. It's like, what was that quote earlier? It's like an age old scam wrapped up in modern verbiage, technology. Yeah. yeah. So pretty wrapping. I don't know what this website is, but it's called kycchain.com. Um, and they said that the Liberty Reserve, quote, allowed users to send and receive payments without revealing details like account numbers or real identities, end quote. So Midas Gold was an intermediate, an intermediary, is that a word? It sounds like a word. Mm -hmm. Selling digital currencies for a business out of Costa Rica called Liberty Reserve. So... Okay, Midas Gold offered its clients anonymity in sending and receiving funds internationally. So a 2013 article from the New Yorker said, quote, Liberty Reserve functioned like a bank. They only took deposits in its own currency, which was also called Liberty Reserve. So if you wanted to launder money, you could open an account with Liberty Reserve, provide them with a name, which could be fake or an email address because they did like no verification. The, the key to the scheme was that you couldn't deposit money directly in your account. Instead, you had to use a middleman, this intermediary thing, to exchangers is what they're called. So these are typically unlicensed money men in countries like Malaysia, Nigeria, Vietnam. They would buy the Liberty Reserve currency in bulk from Liberty Reserve and then sell it to you using whatever currency, dollars, whatever. So it was really like you couldn't, you needed Liberty Reserve, but you couldn't get it directly from them. You had to use this middleman. And I guess that's how they made it like this web, convoluted, less easy to trace. Yeah, I guess I just can't. Maybe I'm just like not creative enough, but I can't see a need for it except for like crime. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see a use for this either unless it's money laundering, unless it's something you're not supposed to be doing. Why else would it have to be so secret and so... Yeah. I don't know. Like, you need this to get this, but you can't get it directly from me. You have to go through another. And they're, they're just trying to. Yeah, just I sound know. like, hey, I would bring it to you out in the daylight, but you know what? How about you meet me in the back alley? Yeah. And wear a mask, wear dark clothes, and put a cap down low, and don't drive your car. Get Uber. <laughs> yeah. Right, if you're doing nothing it's wrong, so you wouldn't do all of that. So, right. Um, 
So I say that, but I'm sure there's there's a lot of people that deal in crypto well, the, that are totally above board. My friend Leilani <laughs> needed this toy from Target the other day because she's using it as like a potty training currency with her stepson, and she couldn't find it at her Target. I had to go to my Target because she knew it was at mine and buy all of the ones I could find. And then she was like, "Meet me in this QT parking lot, and we'll swap it." And the whole time I was like, "This just seems so sketchy." Um, but we did it in broad daylight, and I was like, "Here's your bag of stuff," and I was like, "This like low key looks like a drug deal," um, but it was. <laughs> like two soccer moms <laughs> switching switching, switching target toys <laughs> to get her kid to use the potty <laughs> but whatever so if you wanted to withdraw money from liberty reserve you had to do the exact same thing just in reverse you would use an exchanger again to convert your liberty reserve back to whatever currency you wanted dollars whatever currency. so midas gold is michael patrin's company he owned <gasps> ran one of these middleman exchangers after Shadow Crew. So, again... That's the, the immediate thing he did after Shadow yeah, Crew? Yeah, like Shadow Crew, Midas Gold, yes. Quadriga CX. Shadow Crew, Shadow Crew Part 2. Yeah, yes. Shadow Crew Part really? 3. <laughs> so, the American authorities would eventually bust Liberty Reserve, shut it down in what was called the largest international money laundering operation in the history of ever. And not long after Liberty Reserve was shut down, the United States also seized more than 30 domains registered as Liberty Liberty Reserve exchangers, including Midas Gold. So court documents said, quote, the defendant domain names were used to fund Liberty Reserve operations. Without them, there would have not been money for Liberty Reserve to launder, end quote. So in 2016, a plea agreement was reached with the Liberty Reserve founder, and he admitted to laundering more than $250 million in criminal proceeds and was sentenced to 20 years in prison in order to pay a half-million-dollar fine and forfeit $122 million of company funds. So it really was PayPal for criminals. Midas Gold and Liberty Reserve were shady, and it turns out that Gerald Cotton had a Midas Gold account, Mm. which led to speculations that maybe... That's how Jerry and Michael met. Like, they were working together then. Michael says that's not true, and they met in some restaurant in Ontario, but, like, I'm not dumb. What are the chances? (laughs) Yeah. So he said they didn't even meet online or whatever, whatever. But Jerry has an account on a site that you run that is illegal, and then later y'all run an illegal – well, illegal – I mean, like, because there's no regulations, it's not yet illegal. But you ran a shady scheme business, whether it's illegal or not. So – Regardless of how they met, they're both involved in some sketchy stuff together repeatedly. So continuing with the sketchery, the file on four episodes said, quote, Gerald Cotton was the whole person in charge of all this money, and that's a dangerous situation to be in. Now, imagine having access to all that money, and it's not your money, but you're the only one who knows anything about how that money is handled. And unless you're a very, very strong person, you could potentially get yourself into a lot of trouble, end quote. Yeah, I just, like, I don't even understand, like, if I was, like, what is his background that makes him, like, qualified? you know, qualified to do this? He d- there isn't one. And there's no if checking. If I could just go on the, come on, y'all, I could do this with more integrity. Yeah. I want to take, like, five bucks. <laughs> five bucks to treat myself to something. Yeah, so he's, and <laughs> no he's taking. Case. Crime doesn't pay. Does, crime doesn't pay. <laughs> it takes, he's taking half a percent of each transaction, but these are huge transactions. So he's, like, making some money, yeah. but he has no credentials. Like, in the earlier quote, a regular finance person would have to be, like, licensed and have something, like, registered some kind of thing to make them some accountability seem somewhere. trustworthy yeah and this guy is just like chilling at home with his computer taking hundreds of millions of dollars so 
The Ontario Securities Commission published a review in April of 2020 with the following findings. One, between 2016 and 2018, Jerry Cotton transferred $24 million of his clients' funds to his personal account to buy multiple properties and fund living and travel expenses for him and his fiance, that later wife. See, I was going to say, okay, he could pay himself, right? It's his company. He's mm-hmm. working. But he's got no other employees. We'll get to, Michael did. Yeah, we'll get to his salary and in a second. What's his overhead? You live at your house already. You've got one computer. I mean, maybe you have an extra monitor. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> yeah. So he is using these funds without any apparent justification. Number two, the serious risks posed by Quadriga's business practices were not disclosed to clients. They joined the platform in large numbers, especially in 2017, as crypto assets price as the like the price for them like sharply inclined and as that was happening Quadriga's popularity grew and Cotton consolidated his control over the company like, even more so like Michael left so like right mm. be- left air quotes right before it like it got even busier he became really a one man show and number 3 is that on paper Jerry had a salary of $65,000 a year according to his January 2015 employee agreement. Yeah. Yet, making... 24 mil don't compute. Making $65,000 a year, which is like, you know, kind of comparable to like a, you know, been teaching 20 years in the state of Texas, you're to make 65. But he bought a yacht and a, a private jet and multiple homes. And like, I can't do that. I don't even own one house. Right. I don't know a lot of founders of crypto companies that don't pay themselves more than 65000 But, you know. But he was also paying himself $24 million. Of- Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, on right. paper, he was paying himself $65,000. Um, behind the scenes, he was getting $12 million a year. So, oh, wow, and, wow. and the fourth thing they said was that in the months prior to his death, Jerry transferred approximately $10, $10 million of client funds that he had previously appropriated back to Quadriga and then distributed to clients. So he stole $24 million, but then right before he died, he gave $10 million back. Why? I don't know. Weird. Okay. Weird. It's just the whole thing's weird. And now he's allegedly dead, so we can't just be like, bro, <laughs> what was that? So one of Quadriga's investors who spent countless hours investigating what happened here, but doesn't speak publicly for his own safety, said, quote, he couldn't control himself by the looks of things, and he just blew an absolutely eye-popping amount of money. And that's really what it mm-hmm. seems. Like, he just had so... And nobody's double-checking on him. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's not boards or lawyers or anybody just... No, just attention. him at home in his home office. Any 20-something is going to get tempted. Yeah. I mean... A little bit, like splurge on some iced coffee every day, but you're not stealing $12 million <laughs> a year. So yeah. when the crypto bubble started to bust, people decided they wanted to take their money out of Quadriga. And like more people were taking it out than were depositing it in. And that's when things started to get like wonky because the money wasn't there anymore. So then there was mm. really long processing delays. Like you would try to take your money out and you would have months long processing delays. Mm, and that's, that's a red flag. Sketchy. And the reason is because Jerry stole it. It wasn't you couldn't get your money out because it wasn't there anymore. You gave him your cold wallet password. Yeah. Amy Castor, the journalist I mentioned earlier, said Jerry was, quote, operating a massive Ponzi scheme and it was going down in a big way. He knew he'd have to face the piper, so he either had to face maybe going to jail for fraud or find another way out, end quote. So what was that other way out? There's been a few things that say the Cottons were like eight 
to 10 days into their honeymoon. I'm not sure what the actual number is. Maybe like nine days, whatever. Less than a week, more than two weeks. But they had actually been married for eight weeks beforehand. Their honeymoon was just delayed. So they're going on this honeymoon. He dies on December 9th. They arrived in India on November 30th. The couple can be seen on Instagram doing touristy things. They arrive in Jaipur, which is where he died, on December 8th. They plan to spend four nights in the city, according to their hotel reservation, at the Oberoi, which is a luxury hotel built to look like a palace that has a price tag of $923 a night. But he makes $65,000. The couple checks in at 6.10 p.m. The reason for this trip was not only their honeymoon, but Mr. Cotton had donated some money to help build an orphanage, and they planned to visit it for a couple hours. Okay. A Again, I make little less than that, I guess, and I don't have the money to build an orphanage or to stay I, I at a palace. Props. I mean, you could have just been doing foolish, selfish stuff. That's kind of that's kind of nice. The orphanage okay, just, part. Just wait, wait. <laughs> um, so, okay. a 2019 Globe and Mail article claimed, "quote But the couple only planned to spend two hours of their weeks-long honeymoon at the orphanage that they had paid to build." Though their donation was insufficient to equip the home with doors, even to its bathroom, and leaves the man caring for the orphans in crippling debt, end quote. Oh, I spoke too soon. So it's been stated that other donors spend maybe like three days visiting the orphanage that that their money builds, and Mr. Cotton's money, however... It didn't really build an orphanage. It built like part of it. Built, it bought materials for the orphanage, okay. and the man caring for the kids had to have it finished himself because Aww. he didn't even give them enough money. So this guy said he said that the roof wasn't completed, the kitchen was not equipped, and it was missing all of its interior doors. And he now has eleven thousand dollars in debt, which for where he lives is equivalent to seven years of the average income for the area. He said, quote, Mr. Cotton's donation provided materials. That's a good thing, and it's good for the kids. But financially, I have gone under. I am suffering, end quote. I mean, it's not, like, illegal or but to do this, but it— I guess I just said to understand. I, I, I thought, you know, yeah. if he only gave, like, enough for part of an orphanage, but made it sound like he yeah. tried to build it. And, I don't know, it just kind of helps you paint an overall picture of the kind of person that Gerald Cotton was or— is or just did was nice things on the surface. Yeah, is there a GoFundMe for the orphan man? I don't. Oh, well, we should Google that. that in the link. Yeah, okay. If I'll yeah. look it up and see if we can help this man <laughs> put some doors on the bathroom. <laughs> like what the heck? Yeah, so, let the kids eat in a, from a kitchen. Something good gravy. So Jerry and his new bride are staying at the Oberoi in Jaipur, and shortly after they check in, Jerry begins to complain of severe stomach pains. He does suffer from Crohn's disease. This is documented. So stomach pain isn't really uncommon for him. Jaipur's Mm. police commissioner said that the hotel's doctor wasn't able to do much for him. First of all, I've never stayed at a hotel with a doctor. Anyway, the hotel's doctor wasn't able to do anything. So the hotel's manager took Jerry and Jen to the hospital. But his condition worsened very quickly once there. They arrived at Mm. 9.45 p.m. And Jerry was admitted with, quote, Symptoms of acute gastroenteritis, end quote. I'm not a doctor. Don't come for me. So he was feverish. He vomited 10 times and had severe diarrhea. And he was experiencing abdominal pain and some back discomfort. These symptoms are outlined in the death report done by Dr. Sharma, who is the physician who treated him. 
The same Globe and Mail article that I mentioned earlier said, quote, Mr. Cotton showed no signs of distress. His blood pressure and pulse were both normal. Medically speaking, he was stable. Dr. Sharma prescribed what? antibiotics, right? Dr. Sharma prescribed antibiotics, and Mr. Cotton spent the night in a private room where Miss Robertson also stayed, end quote. Now, Dr. Fagan, who is a Canadian doctor who specializes in Crohn's disease, said, quote, it's rare for people to die of Crohn's. In recent years, mortality rates have declined. If he perforated his bowel, well, then yes, people can get sick really fast, end quote. But he was stable. But he was stable. But midday the following day, he suddenly takes a very sharp turn for the worse and begins to rapidly and severely decline. Dr. Sharma says, quote, he became restless and developed respiratory stress as well. We shifted him to the intensive care unit immediately. By that point, neither a CT scan nor surgery was possible. There was no option because first we had to stabilize him, end quote. But like out of nowhere. So at 2.45 p.m., Mr. Cotton went into cardiac arrest. Hmm. Reports say he had three heart attacks and he was revived after the first two, but his blood pressure was really low and he was placed on a ventilator. So then when he had his third heart attack, he was not able to be resuscitated. Remember, this man three is heart 30 years old. He's 30 years old and he is allegedly dying from something that people don't die from really anymore. Especially not somebody with $12 million. Heart attack. I've never heard of three consecutive heart attacks. I don't know. I don't really study medical I, stuff. That doesn't yeah, mean I, it might be I possible. Might. I just, but I just feel like, okay, I avoid going to the doctor because I'm poor. Like, I could... Agree. Okay, so I sort of fell down some stairs in October. What? Yeah. Okay, because I was... I was I'm going to tell you. I was running, and sorry, sidebar, I was running, and an armadillo ran across my foot. And I didn't know... I know, I've what? never seen an armadillo alive before. It was really scary. It. I didn't know what it was at first, because that thing was fast, and it. I was, I was going down some stairs in the woods, and it startled me, and I jumped, and when I jumped, I dislocated my hip. In the woods! How great! With my eight-year-old. So I pop my hip back in socket, and I have to walk like two miles back to my car. And anyway, so I'm still in a lot of pain. I can't lay on my left side still. I'm pretty sure I have a bone bruise, which you need to see medical attention for, but I am poor, so I'm not going. Gerald Cotton has millions. No, nope, I'm good. I'm going to be fine. If I die from this bone bruise, which I don't know if you can, um, then uh, pretend I didn't just publicly announced that I was neglecting <laughs> my health care. But, um, but Gerald Cotton had millions of other people's money. Go to the doctor. Like, why are you... I just don't understand why he's dying yeah, from... Yeah, he's out there splurging with I don't it. understand why he's dying from something that is not typically fatal. I guess I just don't understand the medical sequence of events that has happened at all. No, stable, totally fine. Midday the next day. So he has, like, diarrhea, his tummy hurts. Totally stable. Next day, I see you. <laughs> that sounds so rude, his tummy <laughs> Yeah, it sounded really condescending, but, <laughs> but like, right. whatever. So... At 7.26 p.m., he was declared dead. He It's like 22 hours after he got to the hospital. Wow. He's dead. Dr. Sharma listed the cause of death as sudden cardiac arrest stemming from a perforation. Blood tests showed elevated levels of white blood cells, which is an indication of sepsis. So, But did they do an autopsy and see whether or not he had a perforated bone? Hold on. Or did they just... So, oh, no, you're good. <laughs> and that's probably all the listeners are like, okay, sure. And then you're saying what they're thinking. So according to Google, <laughs> sepsis is a serious condition resulting from the presence of harmful microorganisms in the blood or other tissues and the body's response to their presence, potentially leading to the malfunctioning of various organs, shock, and even death, end quote. So... Despite the suspicious surroundings of his death, that is a medically credible conclusion. Like, he could have died from sepsis. Like, it kind of lines up. But, like, why? Mm. 
He was embalmed and placed in a casket, and a medical transportation company flew him and Jen to New Delhi, and then on December 11th, they flew to Halifax, a Canadian city, and they had a small closed casket funeral. I leaned Mm. into my mic when I said this. They had a small closed casket funeral on December 14th with only family, friends, and coworkers. Mm. That seems suspicious. It does. Okay. Right? Because, I mean... He, he wasn't shot it, in the face. Why are you having a closed casket? His face should be fine, yeah. yeah. People want to mm-hmm. pay the respects to his face. Or did they not want you to see that it wasn't really Gerald Cotton in that casket? Right. Or it was just like, you know, a puppet. <laughs> Why is that where your Close, brain was? Just an empty clutch. I don't know, man. I mean, my brain's so, not that good. <laughs> okay, let's talk about theories and possibilities. Number one. Mr. Cotton, a 30-year-old, extremely wealthy man, suddenly dies on his honeymoon in a developing country. Two, Gerald Cotton faked his own death and took off with the money. Or three, his wife is responsible for his death in some way. And I guess three B, someone else is responsible for his death in some way. So Or maybe somebody else was mad and got his wife to help. It could be so many things. I can't wait for the Netflix show, especially because this will have already aired and then they're gonna come in and like do all this you know, Netflix money research that we don't have because this is a free show, y'all. Um, yeah, you did good, though. Yeah, I just, I felt like I was, I, I, my brain was I hurting. I feel like the timing's very convenient. Okay, uh, this was on my know. list of stuff to do, and I was just like, I'm going to pick this one because I've never done crime. It's a new year. It's January. And then, like, while I was researching, I kept seeing this Netflix thing, and I was like, ooh, I have to beat them to it. <laughs> so that's why this timing is very <laughs> challenging. Yeah. So I'm actually helping Netflix out by getting all these people to go watch their show because I told them about it first. Yeah, so the best. Uh, side, side note, did you know that the term third world country is considered derogatory? Oh, I actually have heard it. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've heard it go back and forth. So I've heard like developing nations. Developing is what you're supposed to say. Uh, That's like the more politically right. correct. Third world country is apparently mean to say. Um, so developing nations are just countries with low to moderate income with a, like some other socioeconomic indicators. So it would be wrong to call India a third world country, but they are considered a developing country. Developed. So, but, but like if you, okay, why did he pick India? Because he really didn't care about that orphanage, you know? Did they pick India for mm. this honeymoon because it was a developing country and it would be easier to fake a death? Fake a pay death. off some government officials? Over something minor. Oh, yeah, right? right? I don't know. So first, let's start off by saying Jerry's friends and family adamantly deny that he is still alive. Of course, he has $140 million. I would tell you whatever yeah, he they told me. all got a yacht I would now. tell you whatever he wanted me to For tell you. Right? I have no <laughs> integrity. <laughs> I would be like, Jerry's dead. Hold on. Let me go on my yacht. Right? Like, so publicly. I'll be on my boat. Yeah, bye. Publicly, Jen's attorney said, quote, Robertson was with Mr. Cotton at the time of his death, and he is most certainly dead. End quote. Yeah, but she has everything. She has everything. She really benefits from him being dead. Yeah. Medical and police professionals in India also say he's definitely dead. The records pertaining to this event include photos of Jerry's passport, and Dr. Sharma says that the man he treated and did this death report about are the same person. The guy he treated is the man in the passport photo. And he says, though he admits that his death is unsettling and medically unusual, he is dead. So it continues to be unusual. He died on December 9th, right? So on December 11th, Jen and Jerry's body are back in Canada. That seems kind of fast, huh? 
Like You said December 11th? Uh-huh. In back? Canada. Back in Canada from India. He died 48 hours ago. Oh, that's a long flight. You're right. So on the morning of December 10th, the hospital requested a no-objection certificate from the police. A non-objection certificate is a police declaration that clears the death of anything suspicious or of foul play, and it allows the body to be able to leave the country. They cannot leave the country without this declaration of non-objection. But how do you know in 24 hours if it's not suspicious, if it's not foul play? Because over here, maybe there's more fish in India, but over here, that stuff takes a long time. We wait on toxicology reports for six weeks so they can hurry up and get their body back to Canada. Well, no, I understand, like, wanting to get the body back to Canada. But if it was really like a, I I just don't don't even know that document existed. Yeah. So, but like, why, who is issuing these things in 24 hours? Because... We don't get toxicology right. reports for like a month here minimum. And these people are like, okay, yeah. just real quick. This guy died yesterday. Today, can you just be like all clear? No. Wow. Yeah, that's very bizarre. It, I don't know. I've never been to India, but it gets weirder. So this lady, I don't know how to say her last name, but it's spelled M-E-H-R-A. She normally performs embalmings on the bodies for people who are not Indian citizens. So okay. she refused to perform Gerald Cotton's autopsy for a couple of reasons. The first one is that the hotel was listed as being in possession of the body, not the hospital. And she thought that was weird. She was like, why is the body being transported to me from a hotel and not from a hospital? He didn't die in a hotel. Mm -mm. So she was like, eh, that's weird. She also had to ask some medical questions about the body for the procedure that the hotel staff could not answer. She works in a private facility that is typically like away from police scrutiny. And she was like, y'all should try a public facility instead. And, but like, she was like, okay, like, doesn't that ruin, isn't there like a chain of custody? Is there a chain of custody for bodies? I don't know. But it went from hospital to hotel and now a body's coming to her. You could have body swapped. This is very strange. So she refuses to do it and they go to a public facility who is going to ask fewer questions. And Mr. Cotton, air quotes, Mr. Cotton was embalmed there and his body got sent back to Canada. Indian officials do not think that his death is suspicious, and they only learned that people think it's suspicious from the media calling and asking them questions. Like, they were just like, hey, this, this Canadian dude died while he was here, and other people were like, okay, but I have some... And they, they just thought it was, like, regular, I guess. Right. I mean, I, I also feel like the context of it for everybody, you know... Yeah. Especially people in Canada, it's suspicious. All these people are like, where's my money? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I agree. So, yeah, they probably so, don't yeah. even know who he is or anything. So... Right. Yeah, so just this guy dying on vacation who has Crohn's disease and dies of Crohn's disease complications, probably not weird, but with all this other backstory yeah. makes it weird. So... So she she refused to do the autopsy. Yeah, period. yeah, because they couldn't answer her questions, um, and she thought it was weird that they were in possession of the body instead of the hospital. So that's version one. Okay, so that version one, he is really dead. Version two is that it's been staged. Admittedly, I don't know enough about India, but is it possible that someone was paid off? Like, remember the cons have a lot of money, and they were able to obtain like, could they've got fraudulent documentation about his death? And they had a closed casket. Yeah, well, I definitely could see how it could be. Yeah, and the, and the timing of all the things, like all all these minor coincidences apart from each other, or you know, you can yeah. overlook them. But when they all come together, you're like, okay, he had edited his you know will right before he got mm-hmm. married, right before he transferred all the ownership and all the you know his beneficiaries, his wife, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you know, all these protocols seem sketchy yeah. in this region, and then. 
boom, closed casket. Yeah, so he had a closed no. casket. It's an illness, not an assassination. Like, why is it closed casket? Yeah. So yeah, he didn't, it wasn't a fire or something that mauled. Yeah. You know, his appearance he should look fine. Sullied. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, we went to a funeral for one of our students who passed away last summer who was in a car accident, which is injuries killed him. And it was open casket. It was also horrendous. Yeah. And I don't recommend doing that. Um, it was, I'm still traumatized by that. But like he was, this guy was fine. Other than being dead, mm. he was fine. He could have had an open casket. Um, so oh, yeah. Amy Castor, the journalist that I keep mentioning, said, quote, I'm not convinced he's dead. I wouldn't be surprised if one day, you know, we see a press release come out from the U.S. Department of Justice that say he was arrested somewhere. I wouldn't be surprised if other people are then implicated in his exit scheme, end quote. The investor-turned-investigator that I mentioned before believes that Gerald Cotton is dead, but said that he would be more than happy to be proved otherwise. Okay, so in our third version here, our third theory, is that if he's dead, did someone else kill him? So version one, is dead, totes norm. Two, faked his own death, ran off the money. Three, is dead, someone else is responsible. So assassin. in this version, someone, maybe actually multiple someones, could have been paid off too. So did Jen kill him? Because like, why does she need him now, right? She's rich. She just gave her everything. Mm. Um, did someone else kill him? In the File on 4 episode, one of Jerry's friends said that he, that Jerry had become increasingly paranoid leading up to his death, oh. that he was really worried about being kidnapped. He had a lot of money, a lot of unregulated money that anyone could do anything with. And we now know that Jerry was doing anything with it. So couldn't someone else? Couldn't they have killed him to get those funds? It's, I, think, I think it's certainly possible. He's the only person with access to it. Right. You could like extort him, right? Yeah, but really, truly, the only person that did have access and stood to gain would have been his wife. Mm-hmm. Right? So she could be in a cahoots with somebody, but... My I mean, really does my opinion though it means nothing because I'm just a murder historian. Um, <laughs> is that he's probably alive? Like that's just like my gut feeling is that he's probably alive. India is a developing country where most people only go to school seven years, and 66 percent of the population lives in a rural area. Its GDP is like per capita is like twenty one hundred dollars. Um, I just I don't know. Like it seems like a weird. Pl- so you think he's just like in India to chill? No, or I don't. I think he think just went just- to India very purposefully. It would be easier than I think here or Canada for him to dip out. I just want to check in on Jen, see how she's doing. She is she living it up? She looks sad. What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> she if she, she had a new husband, if she's smart, she should be laying low. She should be off the grid. So. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to do a shameless librarian plug because I know that um, my librarian friends listen to it and our library director. I got all of that information from Culturegrams, which is a database that our district <laughs> library provides to us. Um, so we're using it uh, over there. Um, anyway, so GDP is like the monetary value of all of the finished goods and services within a country. So it's basically like an economic snapshot of a country. So in, so India's is $2,100. For comparison, the United States is 55000 Gotcha, gotcha. It's just like, like there's a reason he didn't die here. Well, it's convenient timing. All of it is is very convenient. I just don't know why he went to India. The Palace Hotel. The Oprah, he went all the way to India. Kind of lit. he obviously didn't care about that orphanage. He didn't even put doors on it or a roof or a kitchen. So he just needed a reason to look like he was going to India, but I don't know. It just went for two hours. I mean, still, for me, the, the, the Palace Hotel seemed kind of dope. I don't know. Like, okay, so, yeah, I mean, it does seem... I would, I would go to India. But, um, <laughs> so... There's this thing called the Human Development Index, Mm -hmm. and it's a number, and the number comes from, like, the United Nations, and this is supposed to represent the country's rank 
globally out of 189 countries. Mm -hmm. And the higher the human development index is, it means the more developed of a country you are. And that like includes life expectancy and education and economic stuff. Mm -hmm. So like out of 189, the US is 15. Okay. Guess what number India is? I couldn't. 129 out of 189 in the whole world. So I just feel like... Oh, really? I just feel like that was purposeful. Like there's got, there's more of a motive for choosing India for his honeymoon than the orphanage, I think. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. So... It's a very good case. Very interesting. Is he dead? I mean, I wouldn't want to be pooping and vomiting that much. That seems. But was he really? Like, I wouldn't want to put on that show. We don't know any of that. They said ten. Yeah, times. but could he? Couldn't he have? Had couldn't he have paid religion. people off? Couldn't he just been like, oh, my stomach hurts, and they take him to the hospital, and they give out lots of cash at the hospital, and everybody's like, oh, that guy's like, like everybody say I threw up ten times. Yeah, or like just right. pick oh, two people them. and go with them and whatever. So I don't know. It just. Yeah. Okay, okay. It could right. be money talks, man. We see it every day in like the American legal system. You're right. I would want to check up on everybody. How's everybody living? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a yacht? <laughs> Do you have it? <laughs> Are you staying at the hotel now, $900 yeah. a night? <laughs> so before we close this episode, I do want to tell you all about some resolutions to the missing money. Jen Robertson, his widow, offered to return $12 million worth of assets to Quadriga clients who lost their money. First of all, you shouldn't have $12 million because your hubby made $65,000. These are assets that she believed were purchased legitimately, but she was offering to return them. Remember, there are 76,000 people who lost money here. This seems like a real slap in the face, <laughs> yeah, Jen. But like of those 76,000 people, only 17,000 people made claims for their money. So I'm assuming the other people were doing some real shady stuff with it. And they were just like, oh, well, oops, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> yeah, cut But 17,000 people like legitimately wanted their stuff back. Hmm. Um, and so far, $46 million has been given back. Okay. So all of those, those 17,000 people, they are expected to lose 10% of the money that they put in. Which is better than all of it. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I didn't realize that just because she has, I mean, like he gave everything to her, doesn't mean necessarily that like she's not, you know, liable to. Mm. I mean, legally, she's responsible for certain things mm. too. As his wife, I don't know. It was. I know in America, like if you don't pay taxes, your wife got to pay. Him, yeah, so. but like it was the she wasn't part of the company. If the company did all of that, then like in the company, in the company's bankrupt, it's and it's just like oh, and the end i don't know i don't know how any of that stuff works so that's it sad day i feel like at the end of this episode i feel i realize i'm humbled i don't know anything <laughs> yeah. about anything yeah, kid. same um <laughs> but everything i do know i learned from culture grams which is a data a database <laughs> at school. Not this yeah. plug. <laughs> they're not giving us any money for this i just really like that database anyway so <laughs> or neither is netflix <laughs> yeah sorry not them either oh but that's that's a good one so this is the only episode maybe that we'll ever have called the life and death of our subject and afterlife. And afterlife. So I don't know. There was a lot of crime happening when he was alive. There's a lot of crime happening in his air quotes death. I don't know. Maybe he is alive. As always, you can decide for yourself. Thank you for listening to Sideline Slits. If you like what you hear, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or generally rave about us on your favorite streaming service. Positive reviews help us out a ton. A special thank you goes out to Chris Petro for this episode's music and editing. We love hearing from our listeners, so if you'd like to share comments, reactions, or thoughts on the show, you can find us at facebook.com slash sideline sleuths.